Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Candace Lepage. And as you'll hear from Candace uh, before we get into the movie, uh, it is her time of year, the fall. Uh, October is now less than 48 hours away. Almost 30, actually less than 36 hours away now that I'm thinking about it. So, uh, good time to go to the movies, especially with the movies back open. Uh, get your vaccine, proof of vaccine, head up to the Galaxy at Woodlawn or go down to the Galaxy at uh, Clare Road. The Bookshelf Cinema is back open. And uh, it's a good time to go out and go to the movies. But I digress. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans, and we are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new celebrity documentary, Kid 90, which you can now stream on Amazon Prime Video. But, in terms of going back to the movie theater, uh, in a couple of weeks, there will be a new James Bond movie opening at the local movie theater no time to die it was originally supposed to open almost 18 months ago april 2020 and it was one of those canary in the coal mine things uh back in april 2020 or back in march 2020 i should say because they were getting ready for the big london premiere um they always i think it's lancaster square they always have the the premiere of the next James Bond movie. They had released the Billie Eilish theme song. There were trailers. There was TV ads. Everyone was super stoked, super ready. And then, whammo, No Time to Die was actually uh, a time to be postponed. So it was pushed back to first November uh, 2020, but when COVID <laughs> wasn't going anywhere, it was then pushed back again. I think it was pushed back to the April of this earlier this year in 2021 but then it was pushed back again to october and there it has stayed to our knowledge in less than two weeks no time to die will open in theaters everywhere so it made me think you know there are 24 other james bond movies let's rank them in order of quality so here we go this is part one of our james bond ranking this is 24 to 13 next week we'll do 12 to number one and some of these are pretty looking back at some of them they're pretty easy to find the um i don't know find the places where they the series has let you down but it's also possible to find places where the series um, should be sort of more fondly remembered, these entries that uh, have been written off. But we'll get to a few of them, I think. So at number 24, I have A View to Kill, which was Roger Moore's last James Bond movie. I think he was like 57 when he made it. And boy, does it show, because pretty much all you ever see of Roger Moore is close-ups, unless he's just kind of standing there in like a long shot. <laughs> There really isn't much action that Roger Moore does. There's a lot of, actually, it's interesting to note there's a lot of great action in A View to Kill. Like, the opening ski stunt is um, really awesome to watch. But it keeps cutting back and forth to Roger Moore in, like, a mid-shot, like, from the waist up. Um, clearly against, like, a projected screen. And it's 
<laughs> it looking back is just really really distracting because Roger Moore was clearly not skiing on that mountain. Uh, I do think a view to kill is notable because um, you do get uh, Grace Park, not Grace Park. I'm sorry, um, Grace Jones, uh, who was also in uh, one of the Conan movies. I think Conan the Destroyer. Uh, she has this great build, this great athleticism. Uh, she's the main hench person to the the bad guy played by um, Christopher Walken, and boy does he ham it up in in this movie. It's it would have been an I think it would have been an interesting Bond. Uh, there's a lot of interesting bits to it, but I mean it just Roger Moore's age, unfortunately, is just wicked distracting, and it, it, you know he's romancing women who are all half his age, and uh, it just doesn't work the way it should. You also get Patrick McNee in this, which was like an interesting crossover because he was the co-star of the Avengers, which was a British TV show that was very inspired by the early James Bond movies. But so you know, there there was there was some stuff to recommend, and there's there's also a great like final fight on the Golden Gate Bridge. But again, it's just it it doesn't it doesn't look quite right because Roger Moore's clearly doing none of the action stuff, even just running. Uh, at twenty three, I have Die Another Day, which was Pierce Brosnan's last James Bond movie, and it's just it's it sort of exemplifies all the over the topness and the CGI overload that was like part of the Brosnan era it was just excessive the product placement was excessive um you know the theme song by Madonna like in her EDM phase was rancid and then there's a Madonna cameo in it that just sticks out like a sore thumb it you know it just feels off like it's just too much it's just there's just too much bloat and the fact that you know it came out in 2002 on the heels of real life events in September 2001 and then on the heels of uh the born identity franchise getting going it, it there was just something really inauthentic to die another day um that does not hold up although you know you do get Halle Berry in a great role as one of the bond girls and uh you get young Rosamund Pike as well <laughs> i think it was her big break um so it's one of those they're there's some pluses and some minuses, but the minuses way outweigh the pluses. So I have uh, Moonraker at 22, and it literally feels like somebody went and saw Star Wars and said, let's make a Star Wars with James Bond. Um, there was a lot of this in the Roger Moore era in the 70s, the sort of reactiveness to things going on in other um, cinematic trends. And so Moonraker fits in that regard. Um it does have, I think, one of the best Bond girls in the unfortunately named um, Holly Goodhead. But uh, it is just, it's silly. It's so over the top. By the time you get to the end with, like, the Space Marines having a laser fight with the bad guys outside of a space station, it, it is just, to say nothing of, you know, the the henchman Jaws, um, <laughs> you know, basically going good because he finds true love, which, uh, anyway, there is so much bad in it. I, I admire the ambition. Actually, there is something, and you find this with a lot of Bond movies, there is some kind of interesting story at its heart that just gets way taken off the rails by just, like, the lavish production and the spectacle, and anyway... 
Uh, at 21, I have Tomorrow Never Dies, which uh, was Pierce Brosnan's second James Bond. It is notable for having Michelle Yeoh as one of the Bond girls, and it's one of the first times, one of the few times that the Bond girl has like real agency, and she's she comes into the film not necessarily in love interest mode. Um, it's a real acknowledgement that the world has changed, and you have these really butt kicking uh, actresses like Michelle Yeoh, uh, who doesn't automatically become a damsel in, damsel in distress. Uh, but again, you, this is where you sort of see the start of the, Pro, the Brosnan era bloat, and you have this bad guy who's basically a, a media mogul megalomaniac played by Jonathan Price, who's honestly better in the G.I. Joe movies as a as a crazy Bond villain than he is in Bond. Uh, number 20, there's Octopussy, which again is one of these Roger one, from the Roger Moore era. Um, but it's it's another Bond movie where there's a good idea at its heart with like setting up this woman who is uh, kind of the center of this... I want to say cult, but it's kind of not a cult. It's like kind of she's kind of a freelancer with her own team of um, butt-kicking women. They're kind of like Amazons, actually, come to think of it, which is, is, is interesting, but the movie really should focus on Bond meeting his match in this woman who's kind of like a female Blofeld, and instead there's all this stuff about, um, you know, exiled Afghan princes working with the Soviets to create a situation where a nuclear bomb goes off in West Germany, which prompts um, a, a basically World War III, which this crazy Russian general thinks he can win. Uh, there's Fabergé egg hijinks. It's uh, it, it just... Ugh, it's too much. It, it's too much, and there's also the whole titillation factor with you know people saying octopusy every three minutes. So At 19, there's Quantum of Solace, which is Daniel Craig's second Bond movie. I think this, it falters somewhat because of the very tight schedule. Casino Royale comes out, and two years later, this comes out. But in between, there's a writer's strike. In between, I think they were hoping that they would get the rights to Spectre back so they can do this, like, properly. Um, instead of introducing, like, an interim bad guy agency led by Matthew Almerich, who's not exactly a physical threat to Bond either. Uh, especially the Daniel Craig Bond, who's the sort of, like, built for action. Um, it, it strikes me as um, a bit rushed, like they could have taken the time and maybe had waited like an extra year to really flesh out the script. And again, it was like, there's a story about how Paul Haggis was basically feeding script pages into the fax machine as the deadline uh, for the strike, the writer's strike to begin was coming up. So it just, like a lot of movies in 2008 and and. 2008-2009, they were hampered, hamstrung by sort of the limited capacity of the writers to actually write a movie. So at number 18, uh, I have The World Is Not Enough, which is from 1999. It was a Brosnan Bond, and a lot of people focus on Denise Richards as a nuclear scientist, which, I mean, there's... A, a lot of this in the Bond movies, where a woman is hired, obviously, for her good looks, not necessarily how believable she is in a certain role. 
I like The World Is Not Enough for Sophie Marceau as the femme fatale. She does, like, crazy um, Helsinki syndrome really well. And then Robert Carlyle, uh, who's then most known for train spotting, uh, he was a really great sort of oily Russian bad guy that you don't get very often in the Bond movies anymore. So I think those two things sort of save The World Is Not Enough. And uh, I, I thought the theme song actually was pretty good. Garbage. Uh did a really good theme song for of course uh world is not enough it just occurred to me the last film of desmond llewellyn who played q in almost every bond movie there are a couple of the ones a couple of ones where he did not appear but he is q for most of those first 19 movies and uh that must be some kind of record just to to be the guy in 19 different movies over 30 years <laughs> popping up <laughs> as as the same guy. At number 17, I have The Man with the Golden Gun, which, again, if they had just boiled this script down a bit more and just had it been like a face-off between Bond and this uh, assassin with a golden gun, played by Christopher Lee, um, who's kind of like Bond's dark opposite, and there's a lot of discussion about this in the film. It would have been a much better film, but, I mean, there's a whole thing about solar power and this um, bad guy played by Christopher Lee trying to um, corner the market on solar power, um, which is... I, I could take it or leave it. It it really should have just been like a kind of a two hander with these two like master assassins like fighting each other. Speaking of overbaked, at number sixteen I have Spectre, which is the last James Bond movie that the one that came out in twenty fifteen. It is doing so much heavy lifting because it's bringing Spectre back into the Bond fold. That the Eon Productions having finally unwound those rights. Um, it could have been Craig's last movie, so it had to be like a proper send off. They're trying to build this like overarching mythology from the beginning of Casino Royale that, you know, uh, Blofeld was behind everything, which falls flat. And then you have Christoph Waltz playing both Blofeld, which is probably the most obvious bit of casting in the world. And they do hope this whole, th you know, Benedict Cumberbatch and Star Trek Into Darkness thing. Is he playing Khan? Isn't he Khan? Well, they do the same thing with uh, Blofeld in Spectre. It's like, he's Franz Uberfeld. No, he's actually Blofeld, which, you know, everybody knew going into this. This film also commits the cardinal sin of wasting Monica Bellucci, um, which should uh, result in heavy GL fines. Anyway, uh, we're running out of time here, so I'm going to try to get these last three done quickly. Diamonds Are Forever... Great Shirley Bassey song, uh, Connery's Last Bond. You can see he's getting a little long in the tooth, but he's still pretty solid. It's also the last time Blofeld's in Bond until Spectre. Um, but it's interesting, and uh, it's it, the plot is easy to understand, easy to, it's easy to digest. It's a little over the top, but not too much. Live and Let Die. Again, this is Bond reacting to cinematic trends because it, it this has a heavy black exploitation feel including long periods in harlem and new orleans uh voodoo is kind of the the bad guy it does feature like young jane seymour as the bond girl as this kind of like psychic uh who d does tarot cards and she's really good uh she's a really great discovery um because this was like her first big film but like yafet koto as this like Caribbean warlord is uh, not great, but like the whole thing, like is there magic in James Bond? Is voodoo real? Like that, it's the the movie does not service all that well. 
And so at number 13, I have License to Kill, which is Timothy Dalton. And Timothy Dalton is a great James Bond. There's like this kind of crazy aspect to him where you not a hundred percent sure that he's gonna walk into a room and kill everybody. Um Timothy Dalton he's only in two James Bond movies, but he's not in only two because he was bad. It's just because of financial difficulties at MGM that resulted in like long stretches of Bond them not being able to produce a Bond movie because they just were like on the verge of bankruptcy or were bankrupt. And Timothy Dalton was really kind of essentially robbed of that because his two bonds are wonderful he is wonderful in them and um i wish he could have gotten more opportunity to do more i also wish we could have had more opportunity to spend on this list but we got to move on we got our movie review to do so we're going to review kid 90 next you are listening to end credits here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio This is what I want on tape. Soleil not smiling for once, like the whole world thinks she always is. At seven years old, I was cast as Punky Brewster. I remember Saved by the Bell director saying, the minute you walk onto the stage, you're no longer a child anymore, you're an adult. Did you miss me? There were 12 kids in the business. We all knew everyone. We would talk for two, three hours and fall asleep on the phone. We were just so close. I carried a camera with me everywhere I went. We weren't concerned about the internet. We did the things that teenagers did. We just happened to be in Hollywood. Hey, what's up? This is Mark Wahlberg calling for Soleil. It was all kind of innocent to begin with. Then it just... <laughs> it got pretty crazy. And that was a clip from Kid 90. It's the new film from Soleil Moon Fry, and it features David Arquette, Belthazar Getty, Brian Austin Green, Stephen Dorff, Mark Paul Gosler, Danny Boy O'Connor, Heather McComb, and many, many more. Well, I'm now being joined on the line by Candace Lepage. Candace, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Oh, that was brief. Well, I mean, <laughs> what else do you want? I feel great. It's, it's, fall it's beautiful out it's only going to get nicer for the next like every single day for the next five months this is my happy place all right well we also know that uh if you are aware tuning into the show that we're reviewing kid 90 this week that uh this is also another candace happy place because it involves <laughs> teen idols in the 90s um but i mean aside from that very brief overview candace uh what appealed to you about reviewing a kid 90 yeah, so yes, uh, teens from the 90s, everybody, everybody I know from the 90s, every single person basically who was on my wall or, <laughs> um, you know, taped into my journal or um, heart, you know, CL plus 
whoever. <laughs> true if destroyed, true if not destroyed, carved into my dresser. Every single person <laughs> in this movie. So that was obviously a draw for me. Um, and then also, uh, so Punky Brewster was it. Like, I, so uh, Soleil Moon Fry and I are the exact same age. She was born two days after me mm. in the same year. We are literally the same age. We literally, uh, maybe not literally, I, f- I felt like we basically lived the same existence together. Uh, Punky <laughs> Brewster, I watched. You know, like how, when you think back to your childhood too, mm-hmm. like how often did you get to watch a show about a person who was the same age as you, you know, in the show and acting, you know, as opposed <laughs> to like watching Saved by the Bell. You're like, oh, I'm 13 years old and these kids are just finishing junior high and oh, all the actors are like 17 or 18. Mm. <laughs> so all of my life, I've always felt very much like Soleil Moon Fry. I'm like, that's just like me. If I was, if I was somewhere else, I could be that person. On top of that, I would say even like, I fashioned myself after Punky Brewster as a child. You can ask my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I basically lived that. So uh, okay. First, I was very excited when the Punky Brewster uh, reboot came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came out before I got Prime, so I wasn't able to watch it like when it came out, which I think was about February of 2020. Uh, but it did not take long into the pandemic in March of 2020 for me to realize <laughs> I wanted yet another uh, streaming service. Uh, mm-hmm. So <laughs> I got Prime. And of course, I watched the Save by the Bell reboot and the Punky Brewster reboot um, mm-hmm. at the same time. I kind of alternate between episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kid 90, however, which is the documentary more about Soleil Moon Fry and her growing up and, and all of that. I have had that on the burner to watch for a while, but um, I'm glad I waited because uh, I, I have a, a rough time in the summer. Uh, my mood really dips a lot. Uh, so it was hard enough watching this film last night. When I'm now in my like happy place, uh, I I definitely would have found it even more difficult, I think, to watch if I had watched it over the summer. Um, because as I say, like, so, you know, I just, so many of the experiences that she's sharing, first of all, just about herself and about self-image and um, sexuality and, and drugs and fitting in and all that sort of stuff uh, is really universal for for um young women and probably a lot of other things can be universal for for young men as well but also like every signpost is so exactly like my experience of of my childhood right every um every one of her friends like I said, was someone who I felt was my friend was on my wall, every song in the show, everything. And then of course, um, no surprise, <laughs> no, so it's not really a spoiler. A lot of people didn't make it out of mm-hmm. child stardom in the nineties. And a lot of people didn't make it out of Guelph, Ontario in the nineties, right? Mm-hmm. Like even, even though 
she's documenting her experience as a child star of the 90s with all these people who maybe had more access to things, more allowance to do whatever, more adults who are maybe enabling them. Mm. A lot of those same problems, again, right, are universal. And I've certainly had friends who have died, you know, they just didn't didn't get there. They didn't, whatever happened, you know, whether it's suicide or accident or anything, there are people who I have lost over my time. And so watching, you know, watching it all was, was really like, ugh, I'm, I'm literally, I'm just watching my own life on this screen. And it's, uh, it was a lot. It was a lot by the mm. end mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> mm. No, that's all that's interesting. And yeah, I um, certainly there are kids I knew in high school who even by the time I was like done university had sort of like, like there was a kid I knew in middle school who had died by suicide. Um, but I mean, there were also people I knew like, throughout school because i grew up in georgetown which i i mean yeah, i guess in the grand scale of the grand scheme of things it's a small town although i'm not sure you would really call it small but i mean there was one high school that almost everybody went to which was uh the, the high school i went to gdhs uh georgetown high school and uh so you know if you if you started kindergarten with somebody or grade one with somebody chances are you would have graduated with them as well mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, there were a lot of people that I went to school with who went down a drug hole, who, you know, ended up in jail. Um, and, th- and these were like prom, like the promising kids too. Like I went to school with, um, one kid whose mom was a city counselor, um, and even ran for mayor a couple of times. And so like this, this is a kid who like had everything. He had a nice house. He had, you know, a, a successful parents and um you know his life still went uh, a, a kind of tragic way um and and so yeah it's i guess it maybe it was the times and there, we're having this sort of interesting 90s comeback period because I, <laughs> a lot of this is driven too by like those reboots you're talking about um you know hey remember the 90s now it's on peacock or whatever um yeah you know so it's I guess it's timely too. I mean, if you think about the eighties, which we're looking back at the sixties, well, now we're in the 2020s and we're looking back at the nineties. So I guess there's, it, it's, you know, that, that nostalgia has come around too. So, I mean, there's a lot of that great stuff uh, cooking in, in kid 90 that sort of draws directly to your own life. But I mean, there's also sort of a, a general feeling of, I wouldn't necessarily call these kids innocent in the classical definition of the term, but there is a kind of innocence in that they were themselves on camera on like on this camera that was being toted around by Soleil Moon Fry um, that you don't necessarily get now. Like even people on social media, when they're being quote unquote candid, they're not really being candid. It's, it's, it's all still staged. And, And this is true for regular folk as it is for celebrities. Nobody, um, you know, nobody's nobody posts on Instagram. Hey, I spent all morning on the toilet because I had bad burritos last night. Um, that's not something unless you- that's their brand. 
unless that's their brand. But I mean, whose brand is that? It's like I had this great party with great friends, and we had great food, and it was awesome. And um, you know, it that kind of it's it's candid, but it's of course not candid either. And I think that's one of the the really interesting things about this movie. It was kind of like the last era where you could get candid on camera with relative knowledge that probably no one was going to see this. I mean, Soleil Moon Fry turned that upside down when she went into her own vault, but it, it, it captures a certain innocence of, of sort of uh, people letting themselves be caught on the record, so to speak. Um, as their candid selves in a way that you just don't get anymore because, and Mark Paul Glossler mentions this, you know, you see a flash go off your, his thought is always like, Oh my God, what was I doing? And somebody just took a picture of that. And it could be like, like he's just walking down the street and, you know, carrying a, you know, a bag of takeout or something, but you know, it, it has created a sort of paranoia where even when you are just yourself out and about, you cannot just be yourself because God only knows what, someone might capture when you're being yourself, especially if you're a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's been, especially here in Guelph, there's been a lot of talk obviously about uh, people who are homeless in our downtown. Mm. And um, many of them have uh, issues with, with uh, drug addiction. Mm. And, you know, I think I have this conversation often with, with people who are, you know, sort of demonize it and say, well, you know, they decided to take the drugs or they get what they deserve. And I even saw some of this in some of the the uh, reviews of this film because mm. they do have a like a big section where they talk about, you know, there's actually like recordings literally of um, Soleil and her friends taking mushrooms. And so you see them getting high and tripping and all, you know, all the things they were doing and drinking and all of that. And I just, I always, like, I, what I really liked about that is, you know, yes, I know that some of these people went too far, went down a bad path with this, but it's, it's literally, it's not the drug's fault. <laughs> it's, it's something in us that, you know, is affected by the drugs, whether, you know, we have some sort of underlying mental health issue. And so you take mushrooms and suddenly you're like, wow, I'm happy for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm watching this going, this is, I love how candid, as you say, all of this is, and she's really non-judgmental about it, about all the drinking they were doing and kind of like puts it beside, you know, her being on telethons and stuff saying, just say no to drugs. Yeah, because of course that. that's what yeah. you do. That's, that is the societal message. But the reality is, is that I don't want to totally generalize because I know there are people who don't, but we have all done some underage drinking. We mm. have all, you know, smoked a joint or maybe dropped acid with a friend or done ecstasy at a rave. Like this is a, very normal behavior for young people and you know going up even into people's 20s and i just like it just bothers me when people who have their own past where they you know partied with friends will now turn around and 
demonize people who who have accidentally overdosed and died or who have gone so far down their addiction path that they've alienated all their friends and family and are now homeless. It's just like, it's, you know, it's, it's not the drug's fault. You did the drug too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why can't people see this? And I, I like that about this, that she really doesn't, she doesn't demonize a lot of things, right? Like, and and I think she holds herself a little bit guilty, but not enough to make that really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that she, while she feels guilt, and I think, you know, all of us could feel guilt over certain people and not being able to help them if they reached out and we just didn't notice or didn't hear. Mm-hmm. Um, she holds some guilt about that, but not enough for her to not realize that she was also dealing with things, mm-hmm. you know, she also had her own um, anxieties and fears and things like that, that she was trying to deal with. And of course, we're not always going to hear someone else's fear and, and request for help when we're sending one out ourselves. Uh, you know, it's just like this tinderbox in some ways where I don't want it to be the case, but people people are are just people are going to get lost and we can't always hold the the blame or the guilt for that it's a it's a bigger thing than just us not hearing and and helping mhm i mean that's the very fine line that the movie walks it is you can make an argument that it's self-indulgent but it's not self-pitying it's 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 very matter of fact like this is how it was and um it, it feels kind of humorous that whole sequence like i kind of was like uh bemused by 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 that but watching the the montage of her doing the telethons and just say no to drugs and uh, while you know they're doing keg stands and you know are out in a field somewhere just tripping on mushrooms and um, there's a very kind of self-aware quality. It's like yeah, we were kind of hypocritical, but I mean, who kind of isn't on this issue? Uh, and to, along with that too is um, she's also very self-reflective about you know looking back at this stuff and saying you know now now that I know you know, that Jonathan Brandis, for example, um, died by suicide. I can, I can now look back and like follow the, follow the string back to some of the warning signs here. It, you know, there, there's kind of, it's not judgmental. It's not um, self-pitying, but it's just, it, it's kind of, there's a kind of inventory she's taken that's like, I'm looking at all these people who aren't here now. Um, and this is kind of where the warning signs that I kind of missed that we all kind of missed or, you know, the case of, you know, the, some of the kids from, from kids like, you know, uh, Justin Pierce to it, it, you know, it almost feels like they were on a track that was going to end tragically too. You know, as, as unfortunate as that is, um, and there's also kind of a, I guess a kind of memorializing that I- even though it wasn't the intent as she was sort of filming all this, it, it ended up, did end up being, 
a kind of memorial reel for these people who didn't make it that um, didn't make it this far uh, to enjoy the sort of 90s, <laughs> the 90s <laughs> revival. Um, people like Jonathan Brandis, who, you know, probably could have a, you know, maybe not the career he would have wanted, but, you know, he, I, I think he probably would have made a very good, uh, good you know sort of legacy for himself on the convention circuit you know uh yeah yeah he could he could have been will wheaton he could have been well yes yes yeah. that's who i was thinking of um without really thinking about them but yeah jonathan brandis like they're they're it's an alternate universe somewhere where jonathan brandis and will wheaton are hosting a podcast talking about their <laughs> days as sci-fi whiz kids and how um, everybody hated them <laughs> yeah it's true um uh, what what I do like about this is that it it also doesn't go down the route of trauma porn, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. it it does share the stories of these people, but it shares, you know, it really doesn't dwell on the on the trauma of it. You know, like there's a couple of um, sort of difficult to hear um, text messages or uh, uh, voicemail messages from Jonathan Brandis. Mm. mostly we see you know see him happy and we see you know the two of them together and the same thing with um the the you know people from kids and and um andrew uh dorf and stuff like that like we're seeing good moments of them because that's you know that's what you that's what we all hold on to anyways when when we lose someone you know eventually the the bad does kind of fall away and we just remember the good and so this is remembering them you know pretty pretty nicely and even when she talks about her um sexual assault and date rape mm. it opens with a pretty sort of harrowing sort of read through mm-hmm. of the journal the, the following day after after what happened um but then you know it moves on from there and we get we also hear her tell the the lie she told herself for mm. years and years um and even like f- further on as a relationship continued between these two people we hear more you know happy stories about them and I think that's important to note. Like it's so complicated that sort of experience, which is very common for a lot of, you know, teenage girls. Mm-hmm. That it's just it's comp- It's just you know everybody always says, "Oh, if someone did that to me, I would never," you know, right? They'd be gone in a second. It's like you know what? It's actually just not the truth because we're really complicated and sometimes we love the wrong people and we let them do things to hurt us, but we don't recognize that it hurt us for a really long time until, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. until you're old enough to understand. And I I like that it, um, it introduced it, but then didn't, you know, again, it didn't do the trauma porn. It didn't just go on to talk about like, and this is how it's affected my life and every relationship since then forever. It was just like, this happened I realize now it was bad. Mm-hmm. I probably realized at the time it was bad, which is why I told myself and my friends and my journal all these other lies. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's a lot of that in here to a certain extent. Um, about there's a line I can't remember where she she says like, "Are my memories my memories, or are they a story that I tell myself?" Um, you know, there's a lot of time talking about her relationship with Charlie Sheen and. I, I laughed every time she plays one of these voicemails where he goes, hello, it's Charles. And I'm like, I wonder if he like just, you know, went around calling himself Charles Estevez that, you know, at some point yeah. in the 90s, just to sort of, I don't know, be a jerk instead of, I don't know. But it's, you know, we can kind of laugh at this public persona of the eccentric Charlie Sheen, but at the same time, it, it uh, there is some, being some damn disturbing stuff leveled against charlie sheen um in you know all the years since um involving domestic abuse Mm -hmm. his his kids being taken away Um, but again complicated right because Denise richards you know denise richards stayed married to him for Mm -hmm. a very long time Mm -hmm. um and you know not that I want to particularly uh, diagnose someone, but uh, I think he's actually said it himself that he's received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Mm. And, you know, it's just like, yes, your actions still matter and you still have to be held accountable for them. But also, you know, people have a little bit of like, okay, we have, we're going to try to help you through this illness. You know, mm-hmm. and so similarly, Denise Richards, right? She's she stayed with him for a very long time, maybe mm-hmm. hoping that she could help him. Yeah, there's a lot of that in in here. Like, just it's it's the way life is, and, and you know, there's a interview with David Arquette where at one mm-hmm. point he's talking about how they used to go to all these clubs, and even though they were underage, and it was so easy to get in, and they had their favorite club, and it was great. And we had all these great times, getting drunk and high and things. And then, like, there's a moment where that kind of turns, where he, it seems like he kind of realizes to himself uh, the, the role of sort of fate and luck and, you know, making it out of that situation. Um, it, it's, you know, it kind of dawns on him. He's, he, like, he's kind of like wistful at the beginning of these, of, of, of these interviews and, and um, kind of becomes more contemplative as as he's sort of like rehashing all of this and um i i I, there's something really interesting interesting too that his she's talking to brian austin green and he's in this like well-lit studio space and uh she's talking to mark paul gossler who looks like he's in like a a showroom at an ikea somewhere and But David Arquette's in this like, like empty black space <laughs> where it's, you know, he's kind of gets the most um, sort of self-reflective, not necessarily from the things he says, but you can really see by his body language that, um, you know, he this brought up some stuff that he's probably not thought about in a while. But that, I found yeah. that interesting. Yeah. And I will say I'm I'm also a bit of a David Arquette apologist. You know, he's certainly struggled himself with his own things too. Uh, so it was nice to see him in this and to be, you know, sort of processing like that. Um, I do, speaking of where everybody was being filmed, um, two, two things about Stephen Dorff. First, mm-hmm. 
I think it was filmed in three different locations and everybody else just had their one spot. So I was like, why does Steven Dorf get so many different locations? And second, the one that's like clearly on his like back porch or lanai or whatever they call it in like Santa Monica or San Diego or something. He's just like right on the beach with the sunset behind him. And of course it's like really well lit. Like as soon as I saw it, I was like, holy, they brought in the real professionals to get this shot because it looks <laughs> great. But like, why? Why Steven Dorf? For some reason, I mean, I enjoy Steven Dorf, but for whatever reason, he's always, always just been presented as so much bigger and so much more important and so much cooler than he actually is. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's, you not to bring Blade into this, but I mean that was kind of the whole point of Deacon Frost, right? <laughs> it was like, I'm I'm the biggest, baddest vampire ever, and I'm like Blade's natural nemesis, and uh, I mean that that seems to be his whole his whole shtick is uh, Stephen Stephen Dorf is life. I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> this this film just continued the the agenda. Yeah. I mean, I would I would be hardly surprised if it turns out like for that shot like he brought in his own crew it's like no 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 we're gonna get we're gonna get steven dorf right for once <laughs> on this shoot uh, but i mean there are characters in, in this like danny boy o'connor from house of pain uh i granted i don't think a lot about where house of pain ended up but i mean i i did look up because he's he, he soleil moon fry goes to tulsa oklahoma to catch up with him it turns out he bought the house that was used in the Outsiders because he's a huge Outsiders fan. Right, he's the one. Yes, and he's turned it into an or yeah, no, it has opened, but he turned he spent like three years with like Oklahoma Tourism and the Oklahoma Film and TV Board and Oklahoma City Council, like fundraising and turning that house, which from which what is I get, why. <laughs> They were sitting on the front porch of it. I realize now because I was like, this is such a weird small house for him to to own and for them to be talking on. But yes, as soon as you said the outsiders, I'm like, of course, because that is the house from the outsiders. Yeah, he bought the outsiders house. It was completely desiccated. It was near ruin, but he restored it with all these Oklahoma groups and set up an outsiders museum in the outsiders house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that's what happened to House of Pain. <laughs> Which is just remarkable. It's a remarkable story. They should make a documentary about that. Well, and what's interesting is how many of the actors from the TV show, The Outsiders, were in in this film as well with, you know, in the archival footage, that is. Mm. Um, that, yeah, it was just, uh, yeah. Every, every time a new face came on, I was like, oh, my God, that person and that person. Oh, it was very, that part was very, very exciting to me mm. i was yeah. sorry not to see more freddie prince jr though because i will say when i was watching the punky brewster reboot and he <laughs> showed up as her ex-husband i was just like i mean i was already in but now i am 300 percent in uh, i remember watching the punky brewster show but i don't necessarily remember the thing i remember most from punky brewster is the animated series where she made friends with some sort of gleep glop that she discovered at the end of the rainbow. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I can't remember what the, it was like basically like a, like a koala raccoon combination monster, I think. 
but yeah, I feel like <laughs> I had um like a storybook or maybe like sheets or something. Like I definitely mm-hmm. remember the visual of that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for some strange reason, that's what I think about when I think about Punky Brewster is the animated show with the glee plop. And uh yeah, it's she, she turned out okay, that's the layman for <laughs> Yeah. I will say I I don't remember much from the episodes. Mm. And it's because I was the exact same age. So from 1984 to 1988, while it was airing, um, I was still quite young. And it wasn't until about 1987 that I gained control of my own VCR at our home and I was able to start uh, recording television shows. And so I still have tapes and tapes and tapes of stuff that I've recorded off of TV. And I also have video of my own stuff that I've recorded because we had, uh, I, I owned a video recorder and we had one for the family as well. Um, but yeah, so Punky Brewster, like I remember watching it and I remember visual stuff, but I don't remember much of the storylines because I couldn't tape the shows and rewatch them as mm. I did for many shows after it stopped airing. Um, and it never seemed to like, it never went into syndication, I don't think. Mm. Mm. No, it was kind of there and then it was kind of gone. And of course, she she's like kind of like forever, like seven. And like, even though that show was on for, for five years, so it was like well into her like preteen years um, and sort of the area where the, the, the Kid 90 documentary starts sort of picking things up. Um, but yeah, she's like kind of forever like six or seven or whatever, however old she was when that show started, which is, mm-hmm. um, I mean, considering it was on for years and yeah, you know, it, it was five or six seasons. Yeah. So 84 to 88. So I guess that's four seasons, five, eight, but, six, but seven, if it started in 84, it's likely she would have started recording. Like they would have started filming in 83. Like that's, yeah. especially back in the day, they, you know, filming schedules were really particular yeah yeah it's it may be streaming somewhere that uh, you you know on in the u.s somewhere where to be or something like that or to be (laughs) (laughs) listen i i am a big fan and believer in to be and roku tv and a lot of those free channels they they sometimes shine shine up some some gems there's a lot of turds but they do have a few gems and they can be found um any final thoughts about kid 90 um you know should you watch it or not i think i think it's really for a particular um audience i think if you didn't really grow up in the 90s you're probably not going to get a lot out of this Mm -hmm. um so you know take keep that in mind if you do decide to watch it and if you don't enjoy it so much it's probably because uh it was made for me not you <laughs> uh i would second that although i do think i mean there's a lot of not just sort of basking in 90s nostalgia right now but a lot of re-examination of the 90s too um i mean we have the whole britney spears conservator drama although i mean she kind of hit it big in 99 i still 
consider it kind of like a 90s situation but like there is that whole drama here's again here's someone else who was having a mental health crisis in full view of the public and was not given the support from the public that she frankly deserved um we also have like american crime story impeachment going on right now and there's been a, like a, a years-long project to sort of not to reclamate Monica Lewinsky, but like finally giving her back her voice and letting her be her own woman and uh, letting her stand apart from, from this scandal where she was thrown under the bus while the men sort of got to walk away scot-free with scotch in hand. And I, I do feel like night kid 90 does sort of play into that mold as well. Um, because she's, you know, Soleil Moon Fry is very, very candid about some of the sexualized stuff she had to endure when she's like 13, 14 years old and having old men focused on her, um, her, her sexual characteristics, let's say, you know, forcing her when she's like 13, 14 years old to get like breast reduction surgery. And it's like all this poor kids, like everyone's kind of growing out of proportion as a teenager. And like, you know, she probably would have grown into her body at some point. Um, but by the time she's 13, it's already an issue that, you know, she needs breast reduction surgery. And I think a lot of that is valuable. It's just sort of, a, sort of like a social project. Like you don't have to necessarily live through the American civil war to, to learn the lessons of the American civil war. So I, not to compare these two <laughs> situations, but it's just, you know, I, 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 I do also think this is sort of a valuable historical um, relic in a certain sense, although it's one woman's story. It could be any, as we said at the beginning, any person's story growing up in the 90s, like before social media was a thing and the internet was a thing. And um, when it was a, a bit harder to, to talk about certain types of issues, uh, especially if you're a young woman growing up. So, I mean, in terms of the text, yes, it helps if you know who Suleiman Fry is. But in terms of like the subtext and the issues, I think. I think there's still value here, but I'll leave that for other people to decide. Well, since we're time's up uh, here, Candace, uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to keep the nineties conversation going? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Bring me all your nineties memes. Uh, I am sin 48 everywhere on the internet. That's C I N N four eight. Um, yes. Yes, 90s memes, photos of teenage heartthrobs. Uh, I like them Canadian and, and American. You got some good Ryan Gosling uh, <laughs> shots. I'll take those. Young Hercules vintage stuff only. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but also Breaker High. Breaker High, that was the, sh that was the other show. You're right. All right, let's, uh, let's see if Breaker High is on 2B. <laughs> And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can get the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up your Spotify app and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I'll be back on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. And in the meantime, 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. And I can't wait. We'll be back for 3 p.m. next week for more end credits. And we will see you then. Thank you.